Good morning, church. How are every single one of you? Oh, yeah. Blair's back and he's ready. Those long arms up in the air. It's good to see you back, my man. Um, we, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 21, where we'll be this morning. Kids are dismissed this time. Thanks, Mom. Grades 5 and below can go next door for Children's Church. Before we dive into the scripture this morning, I um, wanted to kind of, many of you know, I've, I've talked to many of you, um, the, but I kind of never mentioned this from the pulpit. Um, I am going to be absent this summer. Uh, I've got a, a trip coming up that I'm about to embark on on Tuesday. I'm calling this trip, there we go, 3430. Stands for, I'm, I turned 30 in April. And to celebrate, I'm going to go see all 30 of the major league ballparks down in the States, go to a game in each of the stadiums, um, fly in on Tuesday down. Jacob's going to join first part of it. We're going to go down to Seattle, and then we're going to go down the West Coast. Each arrow represents a different stadium that I'll be seeing along the way, make a loop around the States. My dad's going to join me for the East Coast, zigzag through the Midwest, um, go to Colorado, and then end back up in Seattle. It's going to be a trip that's going to take 96 days going to be, from stadium to stadium, it's 11,189 miles. That's not that. That's just stadium to stadium. I'll probably end up driving closer to 15 or 20,000 miles and 35 games that I'll be attending. And I just decided, you know, after months and months of preaching, it was time for a sabbatical. <laughs> just needed to kind of get, get away from it all, recharge the batteries. Way too close to working full time. I'm out on that. Um, but no, I, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, a trip of a lifetime. I knew, I basically just looked at things and it was like, it's now when I retire. Um, and I, I said, why delay it? Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I, there's a lot of, the, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's also going to be some good times with my dad and with Jacob, with family and friends, old college buddies that I'm going to see along the way. I'm even excited about some of the lone time with just the Lord and I, um, you know, talking to Blair about some of the things you wrestle through when you go on a vacation of that length, right, guys? And, uh, you know, but one of the, one of the things, that, one of the bummers is leaving Alaska for the summer. And, I mean, if this weather's any indication of what our summer's going to be like, God's sticking his tongue out at me. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, but more than the weather, you know, I'm going to miss the family and friends, the community I have here. I'm going to miss, you know, the, the, our church body. Um, but I'm excited about what God's got in store for us this summer. The preaching team's been working on um, what we're going to be doing this summer. We're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. And I'm excited about what God's going to be doing in my life on the road, but excited what he's going to be doing in our church's life um, here this summer. You know, uh, this, this path that I've spent over a year engineering this path, designing this path that I laid out for myself to meticulously follow, a path that I've got to stay on if I want to meet my objective. And each one of us has a path that was laid out for us. But we weren't the, the architects of, those, of that path. The Lord has a plan for each one of us beyond anything that we could ever dream. And the, the path that he has us on, oh, shameless plug, um, justinfrankino.com. If you want to follow my exploits, I'll be posting pictures, videos, updates. Um, there is no E in Tumblr. Um, I don't know why, but there's not. So anyway, if you want to follow me, do so. Um, but uh, we, each of us have been called as believers to follow the Lord, to follow a specific path 
that he's laid out for us. And the question that we want to ask this morning that I think this passage addresses is what does that path look like and how do we engage on that journey? And in the passage this morning, we're looking at the last narrative in John. Next week, Larry's gonna, Pastor Larry's going to put a bow on this thing. We're going to wrap up the, the book of John that we've been working through for quite a while now. But today we're going to look at this final story. And Jesus, it's, a, it's the last encounter with Jesus and his disciples. And he sits down with them, and he's about to leave. And he's got one last lesson for them before he goes. And this lesson is about what it looks like to follow him. He's about to go. And the disciples are going to carry on this work that he started. And so the lesson, the lesson is, is, is as follows. In John 21, um, he, he starts out, it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Bidimus, and Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So seven of the disciples are, are here hanging out. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. Most of these guys, six of these seven guys, were fishermen by trade. So they got some downtime. What are they going to do? Just like you this summer, they're going to go fishing. It says, so they went out and got in the boat, and just like typical, typical fishermen, but that night they caught nothing, right? Nothing. They go out and they fish. They don't get anything. Verse 4. It says, in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So Jesus comes, and at this point, they don't even know it's Jesus. He says, cast your net on the other side, and all of a sudden, there's a bunch of fish. They don't know. This is a miracle, and not just any miracle. It's very interesting, the miracle Jesus uses to bookend his time with the disciples. Because this was the exact same miracle where it all got started for them. But Peter, James, and John, who were all on the boat at this time, back in Luke chapter 5, this is how he's introduced to the disciples. He comes up to them, and they're fishing, and he says, hey, they, they, they weren't catching anything then either. Apparently they're not very good at their job. And he said, put your nets in down deep. And they did so. They listened to him. They obeyed him. And when they tried to pull the nets up, it says in Luke that their nets were breaking because of all the fish. And then Jesus said, listen, I want you to put down the nets, and I want you to come and follow me. I've got a new calling for you. You're going to be fishers of men. And, and this, this, this miracle that Jesus, the last miracle that Jesus does with them is the same as the first miracle, the miracle that caused them to abandon everything and follow Jesus. I mean, imagine for a second, this is their trade. Imagine Jesus coming to your workplace. You're typing on the computer or oil rigging. I don't, this is oil rigging to me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a white collar man. Um, and uh, he comes to you and he says, hey, I want you to quit. I want you to quit your job, and I want you to follow me. I mean, think about that for a second. That's how I provide for my family. This is, this is how I put food on the table. And you want me to leave that and follow you? I mean, would you have done what the disciples did? And Jesus says, I want you to follow me. I've got you a new calling, and it's all about fishing for people, no longer fishing for fish. And uh, it's interesting what happens here. It says in verse 7, Then the disciples Jesus loved, which we know now to be John, to Peter, it is the Lord. And just like the resurrection account, remember John was the first one to the grave? John was the first one to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? John's the first one and just like clicks. He's like, wait a second. I've seen this before. I know this miracle. I know this guy. I know this guy. He says, it's the Lord. And then Peter, very typical Peter response, as soon as Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped in the water. Now, a couple questions come to mind. I don't know why Peter's fishing in his underwear. That's number one. 
And number two, I don't know why I needed to put more clothes on to jump into the water. But remember, Peter's a doer first, a thinker second. So he jumps in the water, and I love Peter's enthusiasm, where he says, that's the Lord, I'm in. I'm not even going to wait for the boat to get to shore. And he dives in, and he swims toward his Lord. Oh, if we had the passion, an ounce of the passion that Jesus had for his Savior, Peter had for his Savior. And so in this story, what we're going to see is five ways, five lessons, five things that we can learn today about what it means to follow Jesus. If we're going to be a disciple If we're going to brand ourselves as one who follows in the footsteps of our Lord, what does it look like? Five things. First one, following Jesus involves resting in Him for success. Notice in verse 3, when they go out on their own, they don't catch anything. They caught nothing. They're fishermen. They know what they're doing. And they don't catch anything. But then in verse 7, or verse 6, when Jesus says, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, it says there's so many fish that they caught that they couldn't haul the net in. I was thinking about this as I was reading this verse. I'm, Jan, I'm glad John's back because I got a story involves you, buddy. Um, we went back in 2006, I believe it was. I could be wrong. Hannah could help me on my math here. It was youth conference. I think it was Cedarville. I'm not sure. But um, either way, it doesn't really matter. They were all on college campuses. And we, we took this group youth conference, and the, the typical, the group of boys we took, I shared this story at, our, uh, at the conference lunch a couple weeks ago, um, the group of boys that we had were terrible. Like, I couldn't stand them. And they were, they, they didn't care about other people. They didn't care, I mean, let alone the things of the Lord. I, they didn't want to be there. I think that the cops got involved at some point that week. I mean, it was a disaster, right? Just terrible, terrible, terrible time. And John and our dorm room, we, we, were getting, we were in bunk beds together with our footy pajamas. And we're talking late, late that first night, and we're like, man... How in the world are we going to get these kids to care? How in the world are we going to get them interested in, in the things, in spiritual things? And we sat there and realized is we just had to throw our hands up and say, we can do. We had cast our nets into the water, and we pulled them up, and there, there was nothing. And so what we did is we said, we're just going to pray about it. We said, God, if you're going to do something in the lives of these kids this week, it's got to be you. Because we're out of ideas, and we don't know what we're going to do. And it wasn't even, we haven't even finished our prayer. And there's a knock on the door. It's one of the boys. He says, hey, can I talk to you guys for a second? I was listening to the speaker earlier today, and man, I, I'm thinking there's some things in my life that need to change. And e- every single night that week, we, we, ne- we didn't get any sleep that week, all, knocking on the door. I mean, several of the boys changed. They had had just graduated high school. They had plans to go to college. That summer, and some of the girls too, they changed their plans, what they wanted to do with the rest of their life. Some of their courses, the rest of their lives were changed. They decided to go to Bible school or, or to pursue different things that they felt God was calling them to do. And when God tells us to put where to put our nets, we hauled up a whole, whole bunch of high school boys in our net. And it was unbelievable to see the things that we could never do in our own strength. And see what God did. We, we didn't even have to leave the, our bunk beds. God is literally bringing these boys to us. And he's working in their lives. You see, God provides the opportunity. And God provides the power to do what he's called us to do. It's, it's just on us to listen and obey. Incredible things. Can be, and isn't, that, isn't, isn't there such rest there? To know that it's not on us to save people. It's not on us to get the job done in our own strength and ideas. 
not us up to drum up the, our own energy to provide the, our, the answers ourselves. We simply rest in Him and we watch and see what kind of a harvest that yields. So, there, but there is something more important than just what we do for God. The second lesson that he teaches us here is that following Jesus involves relational intimacy with him. Look as the story continues. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, but they didn't jump out like Peter did, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Then in verse 12, he said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. Jesus invites them to have breakfast on the beach. And to us, that might just sound like this frivolous deal. Well, who cares? And in Jewish culture, having a meal with somebody was, was a very heavy symbol. And that symbol meant, I am, I am, I am, I am as, this was an intimate call to fellowship. That I love you, that I'm in relationship with you, that I accept you. See, and, and, and this, was, this was super important um, that Jesus communicate this with his disciples. Lost my train of thought. I had something awesome to say, and I just slipped out. Um, what was it? Breakfast, beach, Jesus. Oh, I'm sure it was good. Um, and this, this relationship that he longed to have with his disciples is why he died in the first place. That's why he rose again. See, Jesus removed the separation that sin causes to be able to have breakfast with them. And one day, that we could sit down with him and have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And feast with him forever and ever. Don't think of it. I had it. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. It wasn't really that great. (laughs) You remember when Jesus got in trouble for eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? That's why it was such a big deal. It was because when he ate with them, it it communicated, I accept you. See, there you go. You can write that in your notes. Um, (laughs) See, following Jesus, following Jesus doesn't mean chasing after Jesus like the wily coyote and the roadrunner. We're trying to hunt him down. And Jesus is so elusive. And he calls us to this standard that we could never live up to. And Jesus, wait up, wait up. I'd be in big trouble if I had to catch Jesus. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus, it looks a lot more like walking hand in hand with him. Or maybe even better yet, that he carries us. You see, you know, uh, Ed Moody, uh, Jacob had a professor, uh, Dr. McDuffie, and, and one of the quotes that Jacob had shared with me, one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard. He said, before we live for the Lord, before we live for the Lord, we must live before the Lord. In other words, so often, we're so busy trying to do things for God. I'm so involved in ministry, and I do all these great things that nobody ever appreciates, and I'm such a good servant to my family. And we try to do all these things to please God, but we never stop and realize the very thing that God desires is relationship with us is for us to simply be in his presence and talk to him, and better yet, listen to him. That's why he removed that veil, so that we could dine with him, so we could have breakfast with Jesus. And, and, and I love here, one of the things I love is that Jesus loves the disciples in the small stuff. And he says, 
come and have breakfast with me. That Jesus cares enough about the disciples, not just go ye into all the world. He says, are you hungry? Can I get you something to eat? And isn't that such a lesson for us with other people? Sometimes we just see them as as commodities in our lives, spiritual workhorses. Do we stop and, and pay attention to the needs of people around us? Do we treat people like people? Do we talk to people like people? So many people in my lives that I never even sit down and think, what, where are they at? What do they need? We need to slow down and pay attention to the most precious thing on earth. And this, this meal, this, this tender moment that symbolized fellowship, it was important to every single one of those disciples that they knew that Jesus loved them and that he accepted them. But there was no one that it was more important to than Peter. And, and that's the next thing that we see here is that following Jesus involves restoration. See, it says uh, in verse 15, this is kind of the climax of the story in a lot of ways. He said, when, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, the last time that Peter had looked at Jesus was across a crowd when a rooster crowed, and he had denied him three times. Now, they've actually met several times since then, but obviously this hasn't been discussed. That elephant is still very much in the room. They sit down to have this conversation. And the interesting thing is the setting of where they have that conversation. The the word here is fire of coals. And uh, this is where they sat and they had breakfast, where Jesus and Peter are having this conversation. This setting, this word fire of coals, is only used two times in the New Testament. First time is here, or one of the times is here, at this breakfast on the beach where they're talking. The other time was in John 18, 18, which is the exact setting where Peter denied Jesus. And so Jesus uses the exact same setting where Peter publicly denied his Lord to publicly restore Peter. And what he asks Peter, he says, do you love me? And it's interesting what he says, do you love me more than these? And the most likely reference that Jesus is making is, remember back in in Matthew 26, it talks about when Jesus is in the upper room, and, and Peter says, hey, even if everyone else, when the going gets tough, if everyone else falls away, I'm sticking with you. I'm the bravest, most awesome disciple you have. I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus sits back here and he says, how'd that work out, Peter? Do do you love me more than the other disciples? Like the bold claim that you made. And he asks him three times, do you love me? And I think it's three times for each of the times that Peter had denied him. He's giving him a chance to declare his love and his his devotion to Jesus. And isn't, isn't Peter's story like our story? That we are traitors God, that we are rebels. How many times have we made claims that we haven't fallen through with? We claim that we're going to follow Jesus, that we're going to do it, and we fall on our face, and we fail, and we rebel, and we betray him, and we deny him. But each of those times, this God of grace restores us. That's what the gospel is about. He wiped the slate clean. And and, and just like Peter, it's not about being perfect. It's not about not 
falling down and not making mistakes. It's that when we fall down, we call out to the God who picks us back up. That is the testimony we have to the world. Not that we're perfect people, that we're forgiven people. You see, God restores us. We sing that song, countless second chances. And the second chance isn't just, here, try again. He picks us back up and empowers us with his grace. Even as believers, it's about relying on this grace daily. That's why he said, if any of you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We need to be careful that we don't make those same claims that, that, that Peter did. That I can, even if the rest of the church falls away, I will stand for God no matter what happens. Just be careful so that you don't fall. That we rest in Him. That we walk hand in hand down this path to which He's called us to. See, the, the, the thing that He says is to Peter is, if you, if you love me, then, you're gonna, then you'll feed my sheep. Loving God is loving other people. You can't separate the two. You can't love. First John said that. You can't love God and not love people. But I think the best, Jesus is preparing Peter for this ministry because the best sheep feeders are those who themselves have been found hungry and were fed by the great shepherd. And when we offer this supply to other people in our lives, when we go out to feed the sheep, to love other people. We're not feeding them of our own supply. We're not meeting people's needs. The best way to feed his sheep is to point other people to the great shepherd and say, this is where your needs are met. You're not going to find it down the roads that you've been pursuing it. There is only one who can satisfy, one who is sufficient. And so I love the, the, the song, um, and, and Shout to the North, that song we sing, the, the last verse and it talks about the church, and it says, Rise up, church, with broken wings. I love that thought. That we, as a collective, those of us sitting in this room right now, we are broken, hurting people who have failed, who have fallen over and over. He says, Rise up with broken wings. He says, Fill this place with songs again. Not songs of how great we are. Not songs of our own accomplishment, of our own strengths. He says, Fill this place with songs again of our God on high. The God who restores. The God who forgives. The God who empowers. And then it says by His grace again we'll fly. We are a church it said, they are weak but He is strong. It's victory out of, out, of, out of brokenness. And on our own we can do nothing but resting in His grace and His power the gates of hell will not prevail against us. This is what the church is and what we've been called to. His statement to Peter is, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. See, following Jesus means living your life for one purpose. But that purpose, what we've been called to, is not easy. See, the fourth thing is that following Jesus involves recognizing the cost. In verse 18, he said, Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, he's still talking to Peter, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then verse 19 says that he told this to Peter to indicate the kind of death that he was going to die. Jesus explains to Peter, you're, you're going to lay down your life for me. 
Remember, in, in, in when, when, Peter, when Peter made that bold claim, he said, I will, John 13, the language was, Lord, I, w- I would lay down my life for you. I would die for you. But what happened to Peter? In his own power, a 10-year-old girl asks him if he knows Jesus, and he freaks out. That's the power of Peter on his own, right? But when he's restored, when he's, when he's following Jesus, walking, resting in Jesus for success, walking hand-in-hand hand with Jesus by his grace, Peter is transformed from a denier to a martyr. And just like his Lord, he does lay his life down. And remember, we, we have other accounts that say that Peter actually requested when he was going to be stretched out and bound and taken to die to be crucified just like Jesus was. He says, don't crucify me right side up. I'm not worthy to die like my Lord whom I denied. And he requested to be crucified upside down. But Jesus here, he gives it to straight to Peter. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to feed my sheep, if, if you're going to do this, I'm going I'm to give it to you straight. I, wanna, I want you to know what the cost is of following me. Now you might say, most of us, I'll go out on a limb to say most of us are not going to experience martyrdom. You never know. I mean, we don't know where the future holds for our country. and I don't know where, where you all are going or what God's called you to. That is a possibility. But most of us most likely will not be killed for our faith. So you say, well, then does this this apply to us? Like, I'm not going to face death following Jesus, most likely. Look at what Jesus said back in John 14, or Luke 14, sorry. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. A bunch of people got together and were following Jesus. Masses are saying, hey, we're in. Wherever Jesus is going, we're going. And he turns to this large crowd that's supposedly following him. And this is what he says to this crowd. Not a good PR move. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money And then down in 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He says, Peter, and he says to us, you need to count the cost. You need to understand what I've called you to. And and he he gets right to the heart of it. He says, you've got to hate your own family. Now, does this verse, you know, does this say that that we neglect our family to do spiritual matters? That's not the point of the passage. But he says, you abandon everything else in your life in dedication to me, that I come first, that my calling overrides everything else in your life, that you, even your own life, is forsaken in order to follow me. And if you are not willing to give it up, then you can't be my disciple. These are very, very strong words. And each morning we have to wake up and realize this isn't my life. This isn't my will. Paul said in Galatians, he said, he said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. What you used to want, what you used to be passionate about selfishly, that has been crucified. You are dead to that. That no longer is in you. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer, but Christ lives in me. The thing that matters now is what he wants. That which Christ wills in my life. That which Christ is passionate about in my life. And that is why I breathe. And that is why my heart beats. 
and is a far cry from how I live most of the days of my life. Have we really counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? Think about the decisions that we made this past week. How many of them were based on selfish passions and desires? But the, we have to understand the ramifications of this, co- of this cost, the time, the resources, the energy. Our own life is forsaken to follow him. But, but here's the cool part. Verse 19. So Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. He doesn't say the kind of death to which Peter would die. It says the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. That, that there is no greater way to glorify God than to be a living sacrifice. And for the record, nothing brings us greater satisfaction. That's why Jesus said in, in Luke 9, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. See, when we try to hold on to these other things in our life, we try to preserve the things that we think will make us happy and satisfy us outside of him, he says in that process you actually lose the very life you're trying to save. But if we lose it, and if we give it all else up for the upward prize of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord, he says in that, in the abandonment of the old life, it's actually in that process that you find life. But you might say, well, what if the specific sacrifices that I'm called to give up are different than some of the other sacrifices that this guy over here is called to give up? Seems like some of us have been called to walk down a harder road than others. That's the last thing that, Peter, or that, that uh, Jesus addresses here. Following Jesus, removing comparisons. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. John is a creepy stalker. And he's following John and uh, Jesus and Peter. And he even admits that himself. He's the author of this. And Peter, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? He says, well, wait a second. So I've got to die. It's not great. What about John? Does John have to die? What about John, Jesus? What's going to happen to him? Jesus' response says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. He says, don't worry about John. Worry about what I've called you to do. It's like when you're little kids, you know, like, how come I got to go to bed and he gets to stay up? That's not fair. Why do I, why, why do I have to wait? And I know this is the oldest child. Why do I have to wait until I'm actually 13 to watch PG-13 movies, but he gets to watch them when he's nine? That's not fair. And I, you know, one time, uh, Jacob and I were talking, and I loved how he worded it. I don't know if this was an original. But um, he said, when we, when we look at people in our flesh, in our sinful nature, we see people in one of two ways. We see them either, A, w- with jealousy, just like this little poor little boy is watching the love of his life hug someone else. We're jealous of them, where we compare ourselves and we find ourselves wanting. That that person is better than me. I wish I was what they were, had what they had, did what they did. Jealous. The other option is to judge. And it's the other way, where we see ourselves better than them. That we're above them. So when, when we compare ourselves to other people, we're either going to be below or above. And how much time and energy do we spend, waste, comparing ourselves to other people? Man, my parenting style is so much better than theirs. Do you believe what they just fed him? 
man, our church is, is I love, our church is so much better than their church. I have such a better work ethic than that person. Or, the other way, we're jealous. Man, I wish I had that car. Man, I wish I had that amount of vacation time. Man, I wish I was like that. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to spend this life trying to be the best by comparing yourself to other people. I remember when I was uh, training to become a missionary, I experienced both of these things. I remember getting really mad at everybody else who didn't want to be a missionary. It was like, why aren't you as awesome as I am? Why aren't you as spiritual and self-sacrificing and not as self-involved? And I looked down on everybody else who wasn't going to be a missionary. But at the same time, I was jealous. How come I have to give up my home, my family, my oh, I didn't have a home, but my hometown, my family, my friends, everything, and, and, and these people all get to still hang out together and live in the same country together. That's not fair. And some of us, we say, well, why, why do I or a family member that I love have to deal with this disease or this illness or this tragedy? And they don't. Why do, why do I have this set of marital problems and they don't? Why have you called me down this path and everybody else seems to just be skipping around happy? And we question God. Why have you put this on my plate when they don't have to deal with something like this? The bottom line is that one day, each of us are going to give an account to the Lord of what we did with what he gave us. And that meeting, that's one-on-one. That's not, it's not going to be a comparison. It's not me and Rana sitting down and God saying, all right, which one's better? Spiritual arm wrestling. Let's do it. should probably kick my booty, too. Can you say booty up front? Um, all that matters, all that matters is that we are faithful. It's the parable of the talents. What did you do with what God gave you to do? The plate that he, and he knows God will not give us more than we can handle. And it's not up to us to handle it anyway. See, Jesus sits down at one last breakfast with his disciples. And he looks them in the eyeballs. He's about to hand the keys of the kingdom over to them. He's about to go up, and they're about to spread this gospel to the ends of the earth. And so these are the lessons that he saw fit to give them. He said, if you're going to follow me, then you need to rest in me for success. If you're going to tell, if you're going to, I mean, you see in Acts the crazy things that the do, and the crazy confidence they have in doing those things. But you see over and over again, they say our confidence isn't in the flesh, it's in the Lord. And if we're going to go out, and we're going to do what God's called us to do, it has to be resting in Him. Number two, it has to come from relational intimacy with Him. This life that we've been called to is all about what we have been unified with Christ. And if we try to do things apart from him, he says in the chapter, John 5, the vine, the branches, apart from me, you can do nothing. Outside of the context of the relationship with Jesus, we are spiritually impotent. And then following Jesus involves restoration. When we do fail, when we do veer off the path, when we do go down for years sometimes and do our own thing, that he is so faithful to restore us and bring us back. And isn't that also a lesson in how we should treat other people? When people wrong us, no, how, no matter how many times, 70 times, 7 times, we pick them back up. And we say, I forgive you. Following Jesus involves recognizing the cost. That what he's called us to means sacrificing everything in light of following him to do what he has called you to do. And what he's called you to do, we remove those comparisons. doesn't matter what he's called your neighbor to do. 
doesn't matter what he's called your spouse to do. What has God called you to do? What has he given to me on my plate? And if I rest in him and walk with him by his grace, I'll be able to accomplish it. Brothers and sisters, on our own, we have empty nets. But by his grace, this church with broken wings can fly and tell the world what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this journey that you've called us on is daunting, and it's scary. And Father, I see myself, I, I personally confess to the times over and over again on a weekly basis that I fail you. And I go out into the day, and I, I just do my own thing. And I live for self, what I want to do, what my passions are. And I put you on the back burner. But Father, each time we stray, just like with Peter, you are faithful to restore us. You're faithful to pick us back up by your grace and set us back on the right path. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that rests in you for success, that we wouldn't try to, if we build up this church in our own strength, we can have thousands of people pouring into this gym, but if your hand's not in it, if it's not stemming from our relationship with you, then it's all going to burn someday. Father, I pray that we would as a church not make one decision, not take one step without doing it through our faith in you. Father, we love you. We recognize the cost. I pray that each of us would sit down and, and really, through prayer and meditation, think through what, it, what entails following you and what you've called us to. Not other people around us, but what you've called us to. And in your word, you say that even when we are faithless, you are faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We praise you for your faithfulness, for the good work that you started in us, that you will complete because of your greatness and your grace. And now, Father, by your grace, may we rise with broken wings and may we follow your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.